Good morning, everybody. Just a few personal notes before we begin. As the person once said, before I speak, I have a few words to say. I just want to thank all of you for praying for my wife, Kathleen, and praying for me as well. Uh, Kathleen is doing fairly well. We hope to have the splint off on Thursday. Uh, Her problem is really a problem of mobility. And she has a new uh, walker called the Hemi Walker, and that's been very helpful. So continue to pray for her. I'd appreciate prayer, too. I have two issues. One with a bulging disc in my back, and it's causing some pain on my left thigh. And the other issue is that my kidney function has diminished considerably, and that is uh, something to be concerned about, they tell me. But whatever, we trust in a God who heals, in a God who uh, embraces, uh, even in our faults and in our shortcomings, We have a God who we can trust. With all of that, that's my introduction to the message that I've chosen for today. And I've entitled it, The Encouragements of Jesus to Troubled Hearts. Have any of you ever had a troubled heart? Well, we'll get into that in a little while. But I'd like to open up by reading from John's Gospel Chapter 14, John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. If you have a troubled heart, here's a word for you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And you know the way where I am going. I've chosen this emphasis because it seems to me that in our country and in our state, And throughout the world, there's a great need for encouragement. The events of September 11th, the anthrax scare, the bombing of Afghanistan, the world threat of terrorism, of nuclear holocaust, the militancy of Islam, the deterioration in the Middle East. We have so many, and I could go on and on. I've listed a whole lot of them on my sheet of paper here in front of me, but I'm not going to read those. But you know, uh, I'm a little bit of a news junkie. And uh, I listen to the news and I find out that we're in a world of turmoil. We're in a world of trouble. We're in a world that needs God. So very, very much. The world seems to be on an edge and being ready to be tipped over. Then we have the slowdown in our economy. 
the deterioration of the dollar. Many people out of work. What does Jesus have to say to us? What can we do? Is there any hope on the horizon that will encourage us? And I'd like to call to your attention again the passage that we just read from John's Gospel, chapter 14. The word encourage literally means to stir up, to provoke, to urge on, to urge on in a given direction. And the idea is to join somebody on a journey and speak words to that fellow traveler To keep on pressing on, regardless of the obstacles. Keep on keeping on. The idea of encouragement is so important that we have a a great verse in the Bible that tells us that all of us should be in the business of encouragement. And that verse is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where it tells us that we should not forsake the gathering of of ourselves like... Do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as the habit of some is, but all the more as you see the day approaching. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One of my favorite characters or heroes in the New Testament is Barnabas. In Greek, it's the son of Paraclesis, Bar Paraclesis, or the one who stands alongside of another and urges him on. Urges him to keep on keeping on. Barnabas was an encourager. In our English translation, it's the son of encouragement. How would you like to have that name? The son of encouragement. One who just comes alongside of you and puts his arm around you, pats you on the back and says, let's keep going. Let's keep going. It's worthwhile. Let's keep on keeping on. Where do we need to be encouraged today? Health issues? Family issues? Do you have a personal issue that's dragging you down? Are you battle weary? Are you lonely? And again, the list goes on. It just goes on. And I trust the Lord will give you the encouragement that you need as we think of our Lord's encouragement to troubled hearts. A year ago, I went to the hospital for arthroscopic surgery in my knee. The anesthesiologist came to talk to me. He had an EKG in his hand, and so I asked him, well, What does it say? How is it? He said, well, it shows that you have had a heart attack sometime in the past. And I was shocked. I was not aware of anything that could be labeled a heart attack. And the doctor went on to explain that there is such a thing as a silent heart attack that I probably had one of these. Kathleen got very upset, agitated, troubled. So she wrote a letter to our doctor, and in due course, he had me take a treadmill test and an echocardiogram. The echocardiogram showed my heart in all four chambers 
to be okay, to never have had experienced a heart attack. When I ask if anyone has heart trouble, I'm not thinking of the malfunction or disease of the heart muscle, but rather I'm referring to the heart as the center of a person. In your very inner being, you feel something. You don't feel good. You feel agitated. You feel perplexed. You don't know what's going on. You're a little bit anxious. And you feel it right in the air. You feel it, excuse the word, you feel it in your guts. I experienced an agitated heart on January 12th. 1990, there are some dates that one never forgets. It was 12.30 at night when the neurologist from the UCLA Medical Center called and announced that Kathleen had had a stroke. He said it was a major stroke. So I asked, well, how is she? Well, we can't tell. It's too early, he replied. Is the stroke life-threatening? Tell me. He says, it's too early. We have to wait and see. The next 72 hours are critical. At this point, I was a little exasperated. Couldn't this highly trained person say something to me that I could lay hands on? Couldn't he tell me whether she's going to live or whether she's going to die? I said, doctor... I don't know what the questions are. I've never experienced a stroke or anyone else who had a stroke. So I don't know what the questions are. Please tell me what I need to know. Well, I didn't get much help. We rushed to the hospital and and I was plunged into a world of pain. And there was my wife with uh, the tubes, you know, sticking out of her and monitors all around her. And after a while, we were told to go to the uh, waiting room and told to wait there. And in the ra- waiting room, there was more trauma. There was a young man whose liver had been crushed in a farming accident. And I was with the family when they got the news that the liver could not be salvaged. There was a the family who was told that in my presence, they should consider removing the life supports from their mother. There was a man who needed a heart bypass operation who also had stomach cancer and was on a kidney dialysis machine. And on and on it went. And I think I understand far better than I ever did before the verse in the book of Philippians, the fellowship of his suffering. I discovered a camaraderie, a friendship with these other people who were suffering. And we would talk to each other when we were told to get out of the room that the patients were and to wait in the waiting room. You know what a waiting room is for. It's for waiting. And you wait. And you wait. And then they take you from that waiting room and say, now come down here. And there's another waiting room there. And there you wait again. And so we made a little joke about the waiting room and how... 
how we were doing in this process of waiting. Uh, very interesting. I believe that there were at least three things that were big contributors to the troubled hearts of the disciples of Jesus. First, based on the Gospel of John, the disciples may have felt ashamed of their selfishness and pride. These disciples had been jockeying for position of greatness at Jesus' right hand. Or perhaps they were remembering the words of Jesus a few moments before in chapter 13. I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Peter had said, never will you wash my feet. I won't allow it. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter said, then wash me altogether from head to toe. In the upper room, everything had been ready. There was a pitcher of water, there was a basin, there was a towel. And the text is very clear about these details. The thing that was lacking was a servant's heart on the part of the disciples. What was lacking was a humble spirit. No one stirred. Not one among the disciples would make the first move to serve the rest. The normal, courteous Mideast custom was not being followed. And it was Jesus himself who took the part of the servant, the place that no one among the disciples wanted. I believe that the disciples may have felt shame as Jesus washed their feet and while he taught them the valuable lesson of servanthood. Shame is a big problem in people's lives. I have seen quite a few people with varying degrees of shame. And some say, you must think I'm a terrible person. I've counseled enough people to know that many, many say that. You must think I'm a terrible person. Do you think it's my fault? As they move between the feelings of shame and guilt. And I believe that one of the things that troubled the hearts of the disciples was this issue of shame. Secondly, I believe the disciples were perplexed because the prediction of Jesus was that one of their own number would betray him. And in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, we are told he was agitated because of the betrayal of someone in their midst. The other Gospel suggests with regard to this prediction that the apostles were not sure of themselves. If you or I had been there, would you have wondered whether you were the one who was going to be the betrayer? Well, the apostles said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And so there was this feeling of the perplexity of, per, of betrayal in that group there. And I think that their perplexity, their unsureness of their own hearts, 
to even imagine the possibility of betraying the Lord Jesus must have produced some agitation. Their hearts were troubled. Thirdly, and perhaps the most devastating of all, the apostles were sad and agitated because Jesus said he was leaving. If there was ever anyone who could fix a troubled heart, it was Jesus. But he was leaving. If there was any, ever anyone who could put Humpty Dumpty back together again, it was Jesus. But he was leaving. If there was ever anyone who could take the blahs out of life, you know, put the fizz back into it, it was Jesus. But he was leaving. No wonder at the end of chapter 13, verse 37, Peter says, in effect, life isn't worthwhile without you. There was a sense of aloneness without the Lord Jesus. A sense of loss of direction. A sense of loss of hope. Because he was leaving. The Lord Jesus exposes Peter's lack of understanding of himself when he addresses Peter in verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, the pronoun, I want you to look at that, those verses if you have to, your Bibles open. The pronoun you is singular in verse 38 and refers to Peter. But in chapter 14, verse 1, the pronoun your, Y-O-U-R, is plural and suggests that all of the disciples had feelings similar to Peter. Life is not worthwhile if Jesus is absent and Jesus was leaving. And as I grow older, I realize more and more that everything in life is tentative. Jobs are tentative. Few people stay on one job more than four years. Job security is not the great cure-all. Money is tentative. And we all know about inflation. The national debt, over $16 trillion now. And we're learning a whole lot about the instability of many of the economies of our world. Knowledge is tentative. A student wrote his doctoral thesis on thermal hydraulics which he repudiated a few years later because he had cheated. He had not done the research which his paper had suggested. But the problem compounded itself because there were other students who were writing their doctoral thesis and were using this man's paper as part of their uh, background for their thinking. Fraudulent science. Human relationships are tentative. You know, people move in and out of our lives in an amazing frequency. Some people leave town, but others just plain disappear out of your life. And still others move out of our lives because of a relational breakdown. 
Health is tentative. I had two epidurals in my back, and uh, neither seemed to have helped at all. Health is tentative. The only person who is not tentative is God himself. And as we think of the disciples, the only stable influence, the only person that they could count on was the Lord Jesus. And he was going away. And in this setting, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Whatever of these areas of agitation that come upon us, Jesus tells us, let not your heart be troubled. And when the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples, it wasn't merely a pious wish. You know, like a lot of our statements when we say, don't worry, everything will be all right. Don't worry, be happy. Let not your heart be troubled. It was and is something that we can rely on. And that is why I want to look at, in the time that remains, the encouragements of Jesus to a troubled heart. In the text of chapter 14, verse 1 of John, it tells us, continue to trust God. You started trusting God. All of you could probably remember that uh, you came to know the Lord two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. In my case, it's over 50 years ago that I came to know the Lord. Um, And he says, continue to trust God. Continue to trust. Whatever your need, freedom from shame, release from a guilty heart, Fear of abandonment, loneliness. Jesus says, continue to trust me. Continue to trust me. Don't give up. When Jesus said, trust me, he was also saying, I know what it feels like to be troubled, to be agitated. Jesus said this. When Jesus spoke these words, he himself was troubled in spirit. And I'd like to direct you to two scriptures. John chapter 12 and verse 27. Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour, yet it's troubling me. Then I want you to notice John chapter 13 and verse 21. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. And he was troubled in spirit and testified. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. And here you have the heart of the Lord Jesus facing the cross, troubled in spirit, and still encouraging others. That's true empathy. The word empathy and sympathy are somewhat different. The word empathy is my entering into your hell alongside of you. 
That's a little put bluntly, but that's what it is. That's empathy. Sympathy is maybe feeling sorry for someone. But empathy goes further. It's entering into the depths of your problem with you and being there with you. So here you have the Lord Jesus. He is able to enter into our feelings of troubled spirits because he was there. Because he experienced it. He experienced the troubled heart as we experience the troubled heart. When Jesus says, believe me, he is telling his disciples to trust him. And trust is probably the greatest fear reducer of all. To not trust is to have a troubled heart. Because it means uncertainty. It means suspicion. It may be paranoid. And Jesus' first words are, trust me. And Jesus is telling us this morning here, trust me with your life. Trust me with your doubts. Trust me with your health issues. Trust me with your relationships. Trust me for the future. Encouragement number two is in verse two. Jesus is telling his disciples, my departure is for the purpose of preparing everything with a view of a great reunion in the Father's house with its many rooms. He's going away to do something. And he's done it. And I think he completed the work at the cross when he said it's finished. Separation is one of the most difficult things in the world and it brings more grief than any other single thing. To be separated from the love of another is to experience grief of the most severe kind. This kind of separation happens between people when a close relationship is broken. And the ultimate separation is when a loved person dies and we grieve very deeply. And the genius of Christianity is that it does not talk of separation, but rather speaks of fellowship, of community, of togetherness, of reunion, of no separation. And when we speak of separation in the Christian context, it is never a permanent separation. Jesus in verse 2 is saying to his disciples, I want to be with you, I want you to be with me forever where we will, where there will never be a separation again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what a place that'll be. Can you imagine what kind of Kleenex God is going to use when he says, and I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Isn't that great? Encouragement number three is in verse three. Jesus said, I'm coming again and will take you to be with me. Then you will be always where I am. The coming again 
is the counterpart of Jesus going, to get, uh, going away. And the purpose of Jesus going away is to enable him to receive believers in his presence. He just doesn't say, come on up, and uh, that's the room over there. Just stay there, and we'll have some time together sometime. Uh, that's, that's not what it is. The purpose of Jesus going away is to enable him to receive believers into his presence. Well, in closing, sometimes we say in response to the encouragements of Jesus, yes, I think it's, I think I understand and it sounds pretty good, but is there something that I need to do? Well, I have your Bible again. Look at verses 12 to 14. And I'm looking at verse 12. First of all, the most important condition Always the first time for everything, you know. <laughs> there we go. Well, verse 12, getting back to that. <clears throat> the most important condition is to believe God. What is your need? Believe God. Believe God rather than the power of positive thinking. Believe God rather than relying on your own ingenuity, regardless of how good that ingenuity may be. And Jesus said in another place, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The second important condition is in verses 13 and 14, and it revolves around a little three-letter word, A-S-K. Ask. Ask relates to prayer. In other words, Jesus says we are to pray. Jesus says I'm going away, but not so far that I cannot hear your prayers. Friends, I know of no shortcuts. I know of no way that we can bypass prayer. And the book of James is very blunt. You have not because you ask not. Ineffective Christians don't pray. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. The alternative to not praying is fainting, growing weary, losing one's ability to function. Non-functioning Christians do not pray. And so would you pray with me this morning as we close. Thanking God that he is a God who uh, heals troubled hearts. He's a God who has promised to bring us to himself.
So let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we can call you Father and, and in so doing to express the relationship that we have with you. We are your children. Yes, little children. Sometimes we don't do things quite so well. But we thank you that you're, you remain our Father and we do trust you, Father, to help us during the, the rough parts of life, the hard parts of life. We trust you and pray, Father, that you will keep us in the hollow of your hand. Bless this congregation of your people here, Father. We pray concerning the... Uh, the hard parts, the troubling parts, the agitating parts that some may be going through. And Father, we pray that uh, your presence will encourage and help them to go on. Father, if we pray for those who might not know you as Savior, we pray, Father, that uh, they will trust you, believe you, Turn control of their being to you. So, Father, we say thank you for bringing us together today and for this time that we have sent. May these words that have been spoken be helpful and may they be words that will encourage troubled hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.